issues are patient. I've been out of touch with her for a very long time. Oh my God. Her mind is very active in the simulation. Simulation? She went on a homicidal rampage. This is your chance to ask her why. Just, just wait. Welcome back to another episode of the Sound Wars Collection. I'm Michael Coleman. I am so excited to talk about director Neil Blomkamp's new film, Demonic. Congratulations, you guys, on putting out a film in the middle of a pandemic. I feel like, Neil, when I found out about your project, it sounded like you were leaning in to, I don't know if it's the opportunity, but just the reality that we were going to be in lockdown for a fair amount of time. I mean, I'd love just to understand the little backstory of when this project presented itself and how you got into development and production for your film. It was an unusual film because it was definitely a case of when the pandemic began, it, it put on pause a, a, a bigger and more traditional Hollywood film that I was working on. And I mean, the whole planet had sort of hit the brakes around March and April. And I think if it wasn't for the 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 massive experiments of Oat Studios and and being comfortable with just making stuff that we were self financing and you know putting on YouTube, it wouldn't have it probably wouldn't have happened because uh, because the idea was like well let's just grab some cameras and make another film except this one will be feature length. So and you know it was also inspired by the fact that I always loved uh, Paranormal Activity and the Blair Witch Project in the way that those directors. Um, self-financed something and just went out and shot it. You know, I always want, I, I knew I always wanted to do that at some point. And so when, once COVID really had locked everything down and, and stopped things and it was unclear what was happening, um, it felt like an, a perfect opportunity to shoot something. And I, I'd also just moved to the area that the film is shot in, um, which, which is a more rural area of British Columbia. And I knew all of these locations that we would have access to. And, um, you know, it was, it was kind of a, just assembling a movie out of the puzzle pieces that we had. So it, it's, it's pretty unusual in that regard. That's awesome. You know, for me, I, I remember when you released not a teaser, not even a trailer for district nine, it was kind of like a, was it a test clip? Like what was it, like a proof of concept? What, what was it that you were doing? So I, yeah, I made, I made a short film called Alive in Joburg, which was, um, it was, when I made it, it was not designed to be a proof of concept for a bigger feature. It only turned into that when Halo collapsed, that it was like, let's, let's um, make a film out of what this South African science fiction concept is. Because I have seen how you kind of, I mean, creatively approach a project and how you kind of workshop it. And obviously you and, you know, your team and, and obviously now what Oats kind of represents the studio. Um, I feel like you guys really like this sandbox of playing in, I mean, now it's, we're playing in like a AR, VR, very interesting, you know, visual space. Um, when you conceptualize this film, did it always live in, uh, I guess, is it Unity or what, like, what, what's the engine that, that's driving all of it? It is Unity. Um, 
Yeah, the, the, you know, like what I was saying earlier about having a bunch of puzzle pieces that you're assembling uh, the movie out of, um, one of them was, was the fact that I knew with my brother who, who, uh, you know, has uh, this history of, of running oats, although I, sh I should be clear that this is not an oats film, but, but it's, it's, it's made up of all of the same people. Like, I mean, Vincent Joe did, did all of the, the sound work for everything we did in oats. And the unity idea was, was this, um, came out of this project that we did called Adam, which was entirely real time. There was no live action component to it. And, uh, my brother and I, Mike, we always spoke about wanting to, at some point use, use some sort of real time graphics in, in a longer, you know, feature film narrative and, and how that may work. And so when this, this paranormal activity approach of just going out and shooting something ourselves came up, I, I sort of resurrected that idea. And when you combine that with, with the concept of, um, of demonic possession and, and a lot of the horror tropes that are in the film, you, you kind of meet at this point where, you know, I guess it, it sort of is what demonic is. It's this idea of, of high tech and, and, uh, demonic possession. So it's, it's a remnant of, of a piece of a project of oats and wanting to at some point use it in a feature film. And I mean, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous that a low budget horror film is like 16 minutes of entirely CG content with that, that was captured with a really uh, unusual method called volumetric capture, which should probably become more and more prevalent in films as, the, as its resolution increases. I love the aesthetic of what you're trying to, it's not trying to be realistic. We're not trying to paint a picture of, you know, a hyper real um, environment. It, to me, it was like its own world. And I, I think I want to definitely talk about the sound of, of demonic, but I love before we go in Vince and Joe for, you know, hanging around Neil for as long as you have, what have you learned from, from cl your collaboration? How do you describe the role of sound in, in Neil's film? And obviously when you found out about demonic, what, what were your thoughts about going back in and uh, working on another picture? Loved it. Yeah. Loved it. I mean, he's, uh, he's real. He gives you, he gives you direction and then an open road. And that's what I like. I like just like, you know, you have an idea and you run it by him and he's like, well, try it and see where we go. So, and I like that. I like that it's, it's an open road and you just throw stuff at it till you like, we both go, yeah, that's it. We love it. So that's, that's what I really like about it. Even going back to Elysium, I would do, tons of different versions of robot voices and that kind of thing. And it, but I was always going through the editor. So I'd send the editor a bunch of stuff and then the editor would play it for Neil. And I think Chappie was the same way. But then when we started doing Oats, we were just really much more direct with Neil and we just start sending quick times. So even, you know, the pandemic hit and for us in post, it really didn't change very much because that's how we worked all through oats. We, I don't think we ever got together once. Did we Neil on, on oats for a playback? Uh, no, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. And Joe and I would just, uh, you know, do our own thing and then send stuff back and forth. And, um, I think the final mixes were all done in my studio and then, you know, send it off to Neil. So we'd send him quick times and go, you know, okay, here's three different versions of this. Okay. Number one, but change such and such and such. Okay, give three different versions of that. And then you'd get to a point, okay, that's it. And the great thing about working with Neil was that was it. That was, there was no 
down. Oh, you know, I liked this two months ago, but I don't like, no, that's what he likes. That's what we got. So it, it worked really well. So the pandemic was a challenge with ADR and, you know, getting actors and that kind of thing with, with the other projects we're doing as well. But from a collaboration point of view, it was really the same as we've been doing for a couple of years now. I mean, the thing that was hilarious was, Joe, do you remember when when we had that party at, at Oates and yeah. I didn't know what you looked like? Yeah. <laughs> so like, I wasn't, I didn't know it was Joe because everything was always remote and that was like completely pre-pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And then, and then I think the, 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 you know, the prevalence of zoom and a pretty, I mean, I don't remember cause I have a terrible memory, but I'm pretty sure we started using zoom when we were doing, um, demonic. So it's like, you know, I feel like starting to like get to know them more visually, um, but Vince <laughs> somehow I knew, I knew visually more, maybe it was like on Elysium or something or on Chappie that we were running into one another. Yeah. We were definitely more. And, uh, there was an ADR session in LA that we were together on for Elysium and yeah, we were definitely more together on those projects, but, but this is way easier to communicate. That's the one positive side of the pandemic is the whole zoom Skype kind of idea, being able to just instantly actually talk to people. Yeah. You know, something that I, I find so interesting is um, when films come out, people like to frame them up as saying it's a low budget film. It's a Hollywood blockbuster. And for some reason, money is a factor in terms of what you can or can't do. And in this case, in this film, OK, sure, maybe it's a low budget film because it's it's not the Avengers. Like anything that's not the Avengers is a low budget film in my mind. It just seems that it, 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 it gets um, skewed that way. So for you, Neil, when you were trying to figure out, like you're saying, volumetric capture to me. I think could be very um, often intimidating maybe for a lot of people who don't have the experience. Obviously you've had many years with your, like you said, with your work with your brother and Oates and everything else. Why did you want to take this approach and what did it allow you um, in the sense of what you could do like from production value standpoint? Well, I mean, firstly, there would be no way to afford doing 15 or 16 minutes of all CG in a film at this budget level without without it being highly unconventional in what the approach was. So a combination of a video game engine mixed with volumetric capture allowed that to happen. But I but I think it, it was uniquely written into the script in a way that we knew that is exactly what we were going to to get. So if if a if a substantially budgeted film attempted to use volume volumetric capture the only way currently that they would be able to use it would be to to bring all of its glitches and errors with it into um, into the movie, right? It's it's not it, it's not going to look photoreal. It's not going to look perfect yet. So it was sort of written around that idea, um, and and so I, I don't really imagine a world in which I we would have been able to do that unless we were at a budget level where you can experiment and kind of take unusual risks and choices. Um, you know, we, we weren't even completely sure what it was going to look like because uh, the volumetric capture examples that exist out in the world are usually created where um, the, the cameras that are, that are filming the subject are incredibly close to them. And it's usually a single subject. So to get two subjects in the same scene, obviously your your camera array moves further away from them, and and um, resolution actually 
is it actually squares itself in how it drops off. It's an exponential drop off as it, as it goes further out. So as, when you're in a four meter volume, which is what we shot in, you know, for a four by four meter um, it was actually kind of a hemisphere. Uh, you, the resolution drop off is immense, but there's no other way to do it than other than to break the performances up and shoot two separate things, which, you know, the performance would suffer too much. So that's in that, in this situation, that's what the low budget provided for was, was a, just, a, you know, a place to play. And it's, it's imagery that I haven't actually seen in a film before. Like we have an orthoscopic shot of her walking through the house where the perspective is totally crushed. And it looks like, it looks like the Sims, you know, and it's, it's like you, you I just haven't seen that before, which is, which is cool. Yeah, I don't want to say, I mean, The Sims was kind of like what I was getting at, too, like that, that very unique perspective that I think people know, but we haven't seen before. Um, so for both Nolan and Maureen, for you guys, what, what to you is exciting? What, what does it allow you? Um, and for, I mean, obviously, Maureen, I feel like with the volumetric capture, it's almost like animation where you don't get production, you don't get anything for free. Uh, you kind of have to recreate that environment. What, what did you guys find were the creative challenges when we were starting to look at some of the volumetric capture of, of this film? Yeah, we were work working to picture that wasn't uh, fully like uh, flushed out. So we were like working for quite a while to the actual live action footage with all the cameras in the array. So <clears throat> that part was kind of difficult to like know what was how what what the end product would be, right? So I Joe did a lot of work in that. I kind of hopped on after the VFX had been finished and, and fully flushed out. So then Joe had me kind of just come back and I did like the pixelation, like come up of the everything in the background and then Joe like seen everything else through. So I think Joe, Joe could probably touch base on a couple of those things a little better. Well, in, in general, I'll say this um, to both, like to, to all three of us, because when we started out, yeah, there's, you know, definitely, you know, it, it looks a certain way. With the vision of what it's going to be, you start you start progressing. Uh, but Neil, like he always he always kills it at the end because I'm always like we're finished, and then I I see the final product and I'm like yeah we got to go back <laughs> like like we got we got to go finesse it because it's just it's just above what I was expecting. I thought I was I thought I was the one always doing that like throwing you guys curveballs with unlocking the edit or something. <laughs> I'm no, it's reels. it's well, it's it's just when you see the finish, it's like you you got something you're happy with, right? Like we did that whole sim sequence, and we were happy with it. And and Maureen was, you know, the direction with Maureen was, it's not real, you know, sort of create something and and use your imagination. So she would do, you know, a bunch of different, you know, foldy passes on on surfaces, but affected. So it was a lot of experimenting because we didn't really know what the scene was gonna, you know end up being or sounding like um so there was a lot of experimenting but again even though we get to the place that we're so happy with then we we see his final you know rendering and and trust me even even the last stage that we think we're we're right there and then we finish uh you know he gives us a, another little output and i was like ah this stuff we haven't seen before <laughs> You know, it just it just it just amplifies everything, and we're like, okay, you know, we got to go back and, and tweak it because you know, there's there's little things that we want to hit. And we just wanna, we want the sound, we wanted the sound to really elevate and be where that picture was because the picture was so like 
you know, cool and, and just doing stuff, they were like, no, no, we got to, you know, add it or massage or change some things just to, uh, just to really, uh, to complement that picture. So those sequences in the movie, um, are my favorite pieces of sound design where it's this, it's this, and, and I remember going back and forward, uh, with Joe about this, where you'd have, you'd have her walking up the stairs and you would have the stairs creaking, you know, and it's, it's obviously in a simulation that wouldn't necessarily happen. And then you're also dealing with a horror film. And then you could also make the argument that in the simulation, it's possible that that user that had built the house wanted some kind of creaking stairs in the, in the sim that they live in. So, and, and there were hundreds of examples of that, you know, like the sound of wildlife outside and birds and, um, and everything had this slightly crushed down sort of lower resolution bit rate to how it sounded that, um, just, it just makes you feel like you're living in that, in, in that simulation. So I, I took a lot of, uh, pleasure in, in, you know, even just watching those scenes, I, I dig them. Yeah. Like one of my favorite, uh, one of the, uh, that I've probably done in my career was, you know, it's, it may seem something simple, like the ambience of those simsies, but man, it was, it was taxing in the sense of like trying to come up with something a different and B that fit the environment and, and just sounded really cool. So that was done in Atmos really and, and down mixed into whatever permutation we needed, but like just, uh, picking the right ambiences and we had it stuttering and we had it, you know, some stuff, birds going backwards, but that sounded like birds, but they're actually birds back, you know, singing backwards, but it, it just still sounded like a bird. I like little stuff like that, but when you put it all together, like if you just listen to the environment, you're going to go, that's crazy. That's, that sounds so different. Like it's, you know, you know, worldly. So that was really cool. Cause when you put that in with the sim, it just glued everything together. So I really love, all the you know textured on the atmospheric stuff that we used on the sim stuff because it just came to life joe i don't remember because i was saying before i have a terrible memory but like i don't remember if we discussed this but did we did we did we talk about wanting to create massive tonal differences between different scenes yes. I don't remember because i mean i know we got there but like i don't remember if i was actively saying that or not because, you were you were uh, you yeah you were and you you're, uh you you love those and, and one of the eraser head, right? Did yeah, I reference exactly. eraser head? Yeah. yeah. So it's like yeah. it's like a square wave where you go from one one shot, sometimes a shot and, and definitely a scene, where it just it's two audioscapes that crash up against one another and it's like massive variation between them. Even within the scene, like we were doing yeah. that even within like a scene like even when she's uh in the um you know, I don't want to say the interrogation room, but where she was just uh debriefing. You know, even those scenes where we're cutting close, cutting far. Just uh, you know, the little changes in those uh, the atmosphere and that that was that played really well. So yeah, we were doing that throughout the whole movie. This whole movie has that sort of uh, huge texture field from beginning to end. You just you just feel it. To go, you have to go. You have to go. You have to go. Stop it. Stop it. Stop to stop doing that. You have to go. Daniel, please, please, please let me out. Michael, Daniel, can you hear me? Guys, let me out. Come on, what are we doing? No, 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 just, just wait. 
Yeah, I'm so happy to hear, Neil, that you mentioned Eraserhead. I mean, to me, you know, um, for David Fincher, that you know, his sound guy, Alan Splett, it's so, it's so serendipitous you just mentioned. I worked with his wife, Ann Krober, and for me... Lynch. Correct, yeah, David Lynch, David yeah, Lynch. for for Eraserhead. I feel like what, what that's um, it's kind of hinting at and leaning into is, the, is what you can do um, sonically that you can't do visually, which is have things that are playing off sound or off screen, like you said, like winds or your atmosphere. And I, where did you start to kind of understand the power of, you know, building your atmospheres and not having to always visually represent it? Well, I, I still think, I mean, I still think that I could do a lot more. Like, I mean, it's, it's, you could probably push that even further, you know, like, like what Joe, what Joe's talking about with how, how those sometimes even within the same scene within shots, how it's, it's, it's varying like that. Um, I think that that audioscape can have sometimes more of an effect on the audience than, than the visuals can. Like if you just had a black screen with, a, with, with uh, you know, something that sounded like some sort of Arctic uh, frozen seascape just howling, it's, it, I think it taps into some part of the psyche that could, be, that could, that could create a response in the audience that may be greater than a, than a silent visual of the same thing. So, um, but I think, I think as time has gone on, films have become more and more generic in, in, you know, like the way the studios will not allow certain, you know, crazy things to be done. And I think filmmakers become more and more okay with that. And I, and I, I think the main, the pinnacle of all of that is the audience at this point will probably reject something like Eraserhead if you put it out today. Um, so, you know, people are always like, well, the studio is controlling stuff. It's like, well, actually, no, the film won't do well because people just, they just want to watch Marvel movies. Um, but I think if you're experimenting, you, you could definitely go further with that. I would love to go further with that. And I, I actually saw, um, I saw in the earth by Ben Wheatley recently, which Vince and Joe, I don't know if you guys have seen that, but just for interest sake, you should check it out because he does something really interesting where he actually incorporates, he puts speakers in the woods in the movie and they're using sonic acoustic, um, you know, frequencies almost in, in the way that this, this horror film plays out. And so the, the audio and to some degree, the visuals are, are embedded into the fabric of the movie. It's really interesting. Uh, so Maureen, you know, sometimes when we watch films, we take for granted that every, we hear every footstep, we, we know every, you know, fall, but in this case, you know, when you see what Neil is trying to achieve, and we have no probably production to rely on, especially for the volumetric footage. What 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 is exciting? I, I mean, I imagine you know you've seen everything throughout your career. You've worked on every type of scene, but then you get kind of presented with something like this. What's unique and different for you? Well, my approach with this one was just to have fun and experiment, and so I would record straight, and then we would play with the sound afterwards, or I would record multiple mics and. One mic we would treat, and the other one we wouldn't. So mostly, I just you make played. it sound so simple. So, you don't mm -hmm. give them that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. years it's years. What, what have you found it, though, so. in terms of um, like once again, I'm going to say low budget. But what happens when we don't think about the Foley Pass in a film? Like what is lost? Because to me, without the work that you're doing, I feel like there's an essence of the soundtrack that that the director is going to want, that the rest of the sound team is going to want. Right. 
Well, it, I think that it just gives a bit of life to the uh, to the show. It brings it, it, it realism. It just and brings gra- it, grounds yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's the link up. And it it's the link up. And it can be the it can be the point of view as well. That where so I can when she was walking up the stairs, it's her point of view. I treated the way I I the character I embodied was the feet of her walking up the stairs not somebody walking up the street. It was the person I was trying to capture. It's sonically, right? So it just makes it feel a little bit more real. What kind of um, stage are you recording it in? Like, where is the stage that you, that you record? At, uh, in, it's in Victoria. I have a, um, a sound studio and a small stage within the studio where we do the recording engineers in a different part of the building. And, and do you have all of your, uh, yeah. like, just... Do you have like props everywhere that you can pull on to? Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, my props I store outside of my room because my room is a little bit on the small side. So, uh, and then I just run out of the room and I gather things and I, I buy if I need, and, but I have 25 years worth of props collecting. I'd love to you, look you're, at that. You're, yeah. You're a professional <laughs> I'm, I'm hoarder and it's totally valid. It's, yeah. It's totally justified. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. you know, in this film, I, I, I went and I watched the trailer, you read the synopsis, but then it's like, I just want to, I just want to be a, a movie goer and see what's to offer. And uh, I'd love for you guys to break down this opening scene because I'm not one. I mean, you mentioned like uh, Blair Witch, you know, I, I will go along for the ride. I will, you know, be right there when it comes to horror films. I just found that what you guys are doing and how you're setting up this, the, the tone and the world, um, you know for Carly, to me, is, is essential. So, Neil, when you first maybe were writing this opening scene, maybe describe I mean, there's accents on the doors, there's rustle of the trees, there's this tea kettle boiling. There's so much going on sonically. Like, is this all things that you're leaning into on, you know, on the page? Um, I think I think writing the screenplay is very different from how you start approaching it from a directorial perspective. So um, I think writing it, you're only focusing really on character and, and story because you because you know that you're going to switch that part of your brain into focusing on how to direct it and what that what that brings. Like once you get to that phase, um, but what what I, what was always on the the forefront of my mind the whole time, and I spoke to Joe about this tons, and I think maybe even the way that Vince approached some of the some of the, the 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 voice recording and the dialogue I think may have even tied into this. But we always spoke about this notion of um the way that films today use they they use almost like too much sound design in the way that they try to create tension. 
and we spoke constantly about pulling everything back. So it would be that you'd only hear like dripping water. The scene that, the scene that you're referring to where she's looking for her mom, I presume, she's walking through the weeds and then she opens the door and she goes into the dark room. It's that scene is about restraint. So everything is pulled back. And if you hear anything, uh, the audience is hopefully is sort of leaning into it, trying to see or understand what she's looking at. And I, I, a lot of 21st century movies would, that would be layered with, with tons and tons of sort of subsonic bass and stuff and things. And, you know, just, it, it feels very full. So I think by, by pulling it back, it was, it was an exercise in constant restraint and also in trying to create the sense of tension and sort of brooding that was bubbling under the imagery. Um, so that, that's the primary thing that, that I, I mean, I remember we had lots of discussions about that. Like what is too much, what is too little, you know, should we pull back more? And it was, it was, it always, it always felt successful. What we had music at the beginning and we took it out. Yeah, that was, yeah, it was a perfect example. Now there's yeah. only music at, I think the very tail end of the, of the scene, there's a little bit of a accent going into the, her, out of her, you know, she wakes up, but other than that, yeah. there's no music. No. And, and I'll jump in there too. And, and in the beginning of that, that opening scene. So there was music and even sound design. Like we, it was massive. Like we, it was like our first rendition that I was just like this, woo, you know, real Hollywood, just big. Rah. And it was this, and it was really massive. So then take out the music. And, but we still had, you know, a pretty deep layer of all this sound design we had going on. So even there, it was like, okay, this is close to this. Let's do this. This is not really, you know, so we just really started to filter a whole bunch of stuff to where we ended up, uh, you know, at the final. So it was a lot of deliberate, I think would be the word to use. It's like if it's if it's needed, if it's deliberately, you know, that we can use it and it's doing an effect, then let's uh, let's incorporate it. So it, that's how everything got really streamed down to to where, you know, we'd hear it and the effect. It was really, you know, how did you feel once we heard it? So we, you know take something out. I'm like, ah, that's making me feel more eerie. You know? Okay, great. Perfect. That's the, and that's the, that's what we'll keep. So the other, the other uh, scene like that is in the third act where they're walking down the, the concrete tunnel under the sanitarium and they get to where the, the priests have placed the mother. And that, you know, that was also an example of, of overbearing music initially. And, um, and actually there's this awesome Latin, uh, voice recording of, of, uh, of dialogue of like a real exorcism, which, um, which Vince and I went back and forward on until it, it got to this place of, of, you know, he has this, like this, this feeling of, it's just an ominous, scary, strange prayer that's being read. Um, and so that as you get closer to it, that's what the audience is really being presented with, right? You're not presenting them with music or something else. It's like, you're, you're being pulled down the, the corridor by this strange voice. Um, but I remember that scene was just another one where we just began to pair things back until eventually we ended up with, with just that. Um, and it's funny. Cause like, I always try to err on the side of being, you know, using realism to some degree, but, uh, that's seventies tape. What are those things called? It's like a tape real to real. And, uh, and I really wanted to make sure that there was some sort of like, almost like digital, like stuttering in it, which doesn't necessarily make sense. Um, but it works though. 
you know it's like it's in there and there's a little bit of crunchy uh crunchy human voice even though it should be an analog recording when carly first transitions into this you know in the world and we have the third person perspective uh i love what you guys did sonically with the echo with the voice with the space can you just talk about playing leaning into did you guys mention that so it was a dolby atmos mix is that correct uh, it was never we, released in Dolby Atmos. No, yeah. We, but Both we Joe wanted... and I were working in a template in Dolby Atmos, but it was never released in Atmos. Yeah, like even a lot of, like I'll say like the experience that everybody's going to get is 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 going to be, you know, this experience. But like if you hear it in the, you know, in the 7.1 or 7.1.2, because that's the way we sort of started to do the whole texturing and the ambience in this whole big, uh, you know, a bigger landscape, if you will. Uh, so we want it to be specific to the speakers, really stuff that's really, you know, interweaving in and out of the uh, of every speaker. And then when you pare it down, you know, it starts to lose a bit of its effect. But the full effect, if if uh, if, if it ever gets to an Atmos, you know, we'll hear this this uh, texture and the ambience just uh, incredible. So I hear it in my room that way. That's why. So I'm like, it's it's nuts. So. You know, I think a lot of times for, for films, you know, with, you know, condensed timelines and, you know, deliberate date, you know, looming, a lot of times we can't take the luxury of going out and re-recording new sounds or even thinking about, you know, new textures. Um, you know, Nolan, for you, where did you start? Like when you guys were spotting the film, what things, obviously you said, we're not going to pull this from a library. We're not going to, you know try to just use a pre-existing sound. What were some of the, the sounds that you were uh, looking for to um, go out and record? Well, Joe, Joe is really good in that he just kind of said, this is the your, your area that you're going to work in, which was just basically all hard effects for the first uh, passes when we were working with like the, the not so locked cut. So it was just, it was just hitting all those doors, you know, all the obvious things. Um, uh, and then the, like, the 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 teapot boiling happens a couple times throughout the film, so I knew I wanted to like record something for that because I didn't want to just go pull from Sound Idea six thousand, you know. <laughs> uh, so I recorded my teapot and I threw hydrophone on there so that it had like a thicker, low texture that I could blend in there, which was kind of cool. And I recorded the switch on it like with a bunch of different mics and different perspectives. Cause I wanted that like thunk, when it, when it finishes steaming and that's that off, I wanted that to sound cool. Um, and then there's like a couple just really brief moments that I re like recorded overly recorded for, uh, there's just one shot in the kitchen when, uh, or in the establishing bit of the restaurant and the coffee shop, she's just like washing dishes in the sink. Like that's a sound that, which we which we ended up. Oh, cutting, did you? Because oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I love yeah, I love that shot yeah. so much. But it was, I didn't I didn't like the whole coffee shop scene. But I loved that yeah. shot, and there was no way to keep just right. that shot. Yeah. So, uh, well, aside from that, and then I recorded a bunch of different lamps and switches uh, to try to get something nice for her, like bedside lamp. I did. I had a really old recording that within a shipping container that I I never like went through and cleaned up and prepped for my library. So I kind of took this opportunity of this movie to like go back, dive back into those recordings and master them and get them all cleaned up. And there's some like gems in that recording session that really made that. And we used a lot of, we used quite a bit of that, like affected and textured and, and yeah. threw it in on those, uh, those scenes. Yeah. There's like a hard cut to the, the 
the shipping containers doors like opening, which I think sounds really cool. So you guys did a great job with the mix and getting that all prepped. Uh, yeah, I, re- I also recorded a windstorm like a long time ago that I put in some wind chimes from. There's this house like close close to me that was kind of a hippiest like house and lady. So she had a bunch of like trinkets like hanging from her deck. So I recorded all that like moving in the wind, and, and I think that made it into uh, Carly's friends like uh, yeah. uh, house. I love it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, uh, something I find sometimes is there's might be sound motifs that a director likes to lean into. Vince, if you could describe Neil's sound palette or 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 style, what are things that you guys return to when it comes to you know Neil's film, especially on the oat stuff? There were so many different styles of things to, you know, uh, the the one where it was all CG. Um, I, the name Adam. got changed so many times. That I don't no, not Adam before Adam in, in part of. Oh, like what, Pretoria could be called. <laughs> I'm trying, trying to There's remember so the many. name. Was it which? What was the imagery? The, what was the, the big concept? robot guy walking down. Pacing around, pacing around with his sword. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's Pretoria. Um, Pretoria, okay. Um, yeah. You know, that was like total CG and um, the voices were all affected. And and then you go from that to, you know, the one that Charlto did where he was God. I think the series was called God. And those were like completely different because you're looking at a mini world and, you know, one's the African planes and one's, you know, something else. And the puppets. And the, and the, the, yeah, the puppets it. aren't released yet. They're not Chakaroo. released yet. <laughs> yeah, Chakaroo's not out yet. No, no, you can, you can talk about it, Maureen, but it's like, it just, the, <laughs> yeah. the audience just won't know. I loved yeah, it. Yeah, Chakaroo is one it. of my favorites for sure. Yeah. So, you know, it. there is no real style or, or thing that Neil goes to except what's called for in the film. Really? Yeah, you know, I, I feel like there is one thing that I do often try to that I that I find myself doing like way too much, which is, and I mean, this is more prevalent in Elysium and District Nine, and then to a lesser degree, it's in Adam as well, which is overhead like computer voices that are speaking oh, yeah, to characters in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> like I always well, do where that. did you? I mean, well, yeah. we did that in Chappie okay. a bit too. Yeah, no, it's like constant. I can't stop myself. Like, just chatter. Yeah. Like, yeah, like yeah, it would be it would be some sort of pre-recorded overhead voice, like like in Adam when all of the the droids need refuge and they've been walking through the desert, they go into this this like airdroppable sort of military shelter that's a hundred years old, and they seek refuge. And when they're walking up the stairs going in, there's this pre-recorded Chinese language voice that's telling them what to do. Right? Yeah, and but it, that, it would that sounds so from cool. War. It does. No, I agree. It sounds amazing. No, the cool um, the cool thing there too is they they all have a different flavor. Like it's not like you're stuck to a certain sound of it. <laughs> it's like they all got a different texture or flavor to it. So that's that's what I like about it. They, well, Elysium like, oh, it's was this way. Elysium was the extreme where you know yeah. we would have four or five different actors do a voice and then pick between. I mean, I don't know how many actors I went through for all the computer voices and the overhead voices and the you know there were so many different voices playing in the background and it just added this wonderful texture to the film yeah uh, this is a really out there question neil are you a video gamer do you play many video games um 
Yeah, I mean, yes. I I, wouldn't, I don't I don't think I played too many, many video games, but I play I do play video games. This is not an intervention. The reason why I ask is I feel like that's something that that's reminiscent of video games when we have like a non non linear non scripted yeah. environment where like we need stuff. If the player just stands still, we're going to hear the world around them, and I feel like that's kind of the sense I get is is that you're leaning into like it's a world that we're kind of living in, and it's not scripted and it's not pre programmed. It's it's just live. It's it's living. Yeah, I mean, you could be right. Uh, you could be right, like like sort of a GTA Five open world kind of situation. Yeah, I mean, that could be true. I, I I think, for me, I feel like it does come from science fiction that I saw when I was a kid. I think, and it's hard to think of exactly which films I'm referencing, but I, I think Blade. I mean, Blade Runner's done that. I, I feel like in in the sense, maybe the original. No, yeah. lot, lots yeah. of them have done it. Okay. I'm just I'm just trying to think which one was the one that really had an effect on me. Um, yeah, it's 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 like the classic sort of you know uh, disassociated voice that's giving you some sort of nuclear countdown. It's like that. It's that trope. I found that sometimes, and I, I in David Fincher's films, I think the backgrounds are just as interesting as what's going on sometimes. And, and I think this is the case with Demonic too. Is what you guys are doing in your atmospheres and your backgrounds? It's not wind; it's a presence because there is a presence in this. You know, as a character. So you know, I, I feel like it's obviously it shows up in the writing it shows up in in the soundtrack and i feel like you know when i was asking you vince like is there something you, you return is there a return i feel like maybe it is the backgrounds you are thinking about the world and not just what the the camera is presenting yeah there's also i mean i'm always in the dialogue i'm trying to try to make it interesting like even those that the cg scenes you're talking about i think i have it here where she's walking down the first cg scene I just got this delay with a flanger with the spinning around in 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 Atmos or seven one. It's great, but <laughs> even in stereo, it kind of translates. Where and then once everything else is in there, you don't really hear the delay, but you feel this weirdness of it. And just trying to trying to step it out of just the normal. And it also it also grounds the audience with even though they're in a simulation, there's this, these extremely organic human, you know, breathy, this feeling of organics that's happening inside of a sim that I think is, is good for the audience. Three, two, one. Okay, looking good. And she's dropping in. You know, for this this character, the, the creature of the, the demon, 
did you guys always establish the visual aesthetic of what that was going to look and feel like? Or how, what was the evolution of this? Because I feel like when we do reveal it sonically, it's pretty astonishing, like what's what's going on. I, I mean, for me, it was it was it was conceived of as some sort of raven crow uh, bipedal anthropomorphic thing from day one. It, I, I, people have asked me in other interviews, like where that comes from. I have like no idea. But it was just written that way and it just it just stuck and then a concept artist that i work with a lot did one illustration of it and just hit it out of the park and it was exactly what is in the movie um but i agree the sound is super cool and it has this like bird like shrill that's sort of terrifying uh how did you guys do that um so that creature was was really fun and uh and you know when i first saw it i i I instantly like fell in love with it, so it's like okay, I'm, I'm all in. Um, so it started experimenting with uh, with different sounds for that, but uh, definitely wanted it to be shrieky and you know scary and annoying and, and all that sort of stuff. But in today's like in today's plugins or today's uh, software, I mean we're you know the, the there's so much you can do and it's so much fun. So like in, in this, in this situation, like you can build a profile, which is what I did. So you can build a vocal profile of what you want the creature to sort of sound like or mimic or how the attack is and the release. So now you have this, this profile. Now you can attach or start to create and layer sounds within to build that profile. Uh, so that's how it started, but then now you can take it a step further, and like with plugins like Envy and and uh, I think Transformers got it or Reformers, like you can add elements within it, and because you still have the base profile of that sound, like in this case we have the base sound that we've created, which is the shrieking creature, but to that there's elements of ice cracking. Um, there is a high-pitched metal, sh um, you know, um, sh uh, what do you call it, uh, just a shrieking. Um, and then there's also some slimy, gurgling goo. But now you can all layer that and mix that in into the, the profile that you've created. And it's just great. Like, you can just change something so and, and give it texture and, and just... It's not one-dimensional anymore. Joe, Joe, did we talk about cracking ice when we were talking about the creature? No. Do we ever bring that up? No. Because you know what's you know what's what's so weird about that is that was my reference for Olaf from music. Oh wow! I sent him uh, sort of these fjords that were breaking and cracking as the basis to just kind of like start working on the soundtrack. Yeah, no, so I just uh, I just threw that in because I liked the way it was uh, interacting with the bass creature voice and all the the crackling 
aspects of it and when I put it in the profile it was just enhancing certain things or accenting certain things and I'm like love it and then the you know the the uh, the slimy goo was sort of the you know something I was holding it together at the bottom end and the shrieky metal was was just pointing some some high accents to it so it's just all together it's just really cool sound but again that's that's what I love about today is like you can you can really start to get in and really manipulate a lot of stuff uh, with profiling, and, and I love that. I love I love the fact that you know you can even create something with your own mouth and and totally retransform it into something else because you just based a you know you create a profile that you want to use. So love that today. The other uh, place that has really interesting, um, you know, like a sort of mosaic of of different. Uh, sounds layered on top of one another is when she actually becomes possessed and you have all of the swirling voices around her um <clears throat> i really like the way that came together too you know marine I, I find that like sometimes with sound you know editorial and whatnot they're going to cover everything and then you and then foley can come in maybe before or after and accent certain moments what did you find you wanted to provide when it came to this demon because i, I feel like with a feathered creature it's like that to me seems like a performance opportunity that only Foley should be kind of representing. Yeah, what was your approach? Well, I tried to just break down what it was and give it mass and give it. Um, um, I kept thinking of the, when you open up a bird wing, it's got the spiny sort of, and that's the sound I was trying to get that kind of sound. That's what really stuck in my head. So I was that was the approach I was looking for the direction i went and just tried to get it any way i could whether they used it or not no, i don't and, know and probably no, not did. always no, gets that, turned that, off that, you know we used it no, the the other thing too to uh to keep in mind like so just the way this team worked um just so you get a sense of it is whenever we created something like like maureen was working on the creature and if i was already like mid stride and something I liked, like the shrieking sound, like maybe it wasn't finished totally, but I already had like a base of what I wanted. So I would dump that, you know, create a mix of that, send it to Maureen, send it to Vince. So now in their templates, they already have sort of where I'm at. So now they can, you know, sort of work around it or sweeten stuff. So Vince can start to move voices around to what I'm doing. Maureen knows what Hardfex is like going to be covering them sort of the direction I'm going. And so now she doesn't have to do the same thing, but she's like, okay, he's got this and now she's creating something else. And that's why it works. So it's like, we're not, we're not overlapping sounds or doing stuff that's generically the same. So she's like, he's covering that. I send it to Nolan, same thing. He'd hear what I was doing. And now he'd complement it with something else. Like we, the structure that this this was it was all like that everybody every time there was an update in two weeks i did you know we we find it okay send another mix out to these guys so they always had a lay of the land of where we were and so was vince vince was doing the same thing if he was creating something send it to me so i know where he was and where i didn't want to overlap or or get in the way of for the like creature demon joe had sent me like this was quite far down the line when we were like getting really close with it like Joe had it super flushed out and he just wanted some guttural like things happening in between the real big shriek. So he, he sent me his down mix and then I, I just added some little guttural breathy bits like in between the shrieks. I don't know if they, how, how that, wh where it ended in the mix, but <laughs> I, I love, I love to just say I did everyone throwing their ideas into the pot. 
leaving it to kind of what best serves the picture and ultimately, you know, what's going to support the story. Um, you know, I think lastly, just to close out this conversation, Neil, what do you learn from returning to a smaller scale, a more um, just, I don't know, an approach where I feel like you don't need to appease anyone. You're really just appeasing the story and, and, and really taking care of what, you know, the inspiration was for, for, for doing this project. Yeah. Well, what, 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 yeah. What do you enjoy about, about being a little more nimble in the sense of what you guys are doing with demonic? I mean, to be honest, it didn't really feel that different to me in the sense that I think may, maybe as I've gotten older, I have more of an eye for thinking about what the audience is feeling. Like, I mean, Chappie is an example of where I just, I didn't give two shits with the audience at all, you know, <laughs> And that's not necessarily the best thing. <laughs> well, well, well um, when you say that, you mean in the sense of you're doing something because you want, you're satisfying like your own needs initially. Yeah. It's, it, you know, it's, it's, a, I mean, being, being a, a filmmaker is a very strange thing. It's like, well, who are you making films for? What are you doing? You know what? I mean, artwork in general, like what, what are you doing? Are you making for yourself? Are you making for other people? It's, it's a very deep, weird psychological question. Um, and I find myself thinking about where the audience is in the story and in the film more lately. Uh, so whether it's a hundred million dollar film or a $1 million film, I think I don't really see that changing that much. You know, you, you, I think, I think you can, you can try to be experimental and unusual as long as you don't confuse the audience or leave them, leave them sort of, you know, lying in the background. Um, but I think, I think the process for me was definitely, it felt very creative um, maybe because of the fact that it was lower budget and we didn't have too many people breathing down our necks, you know? Uh, so it, it felt cool to me. Um, I think it was a lot of pressure for everyone, including me, because we were trying to do something that, that effectively looked and felt and sounded much bigger than it financially was, you know? So that, that creates pressure, but yeah, I mean, overall it, it, it was it was a really good process, you know. It was, a, it was a creative process with with the result that I feel I feel proud of. Yeah, it's it's always um, really interesting. We don't have the perspective of a project until it's behind us in in a way that I mean, reviews aside, like you say, like I'm not doing this for like I don't really care what people think. I'm doing this project because as an artist, I I, I am you know need to challenge myself and do things that you know I haven't done before. I think. Uh I mean, I care less about reviews than I do about the audience. Like the, like, like, like imagine watching the movie in a theater with an audience. Right. And it's like, are they getting what they feel is their money's worth for driving to a movie theater and sitting down and watching something. And I, I think that's a really good barometer to, to sort of measure, measure what you're doing up against. So, because you are making it for the audience, ultimately, um, reviews are a lot less interesting. You know, I think you guys showed that you can continue to put out really exciting, new, interesting stories. And especially with the volumetric aspect, I don't think we've ever seen anything quite like it. And that's why I'm saying, I think once we had the perspective in a few years from now, I think we'll look back and be like, that was really cool. I can't believe we had the chance to do that because maybe otherwise we wouldn't have had the opportunity to tell a story like Demonic. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's going to be pretty fascinating to see where volumetric capture goes. I mean, once once the resolution, if you get to the point that individual hair strands are visible in 3D, I, I don't see traditional cameras really hanging on for that much longer at that point, because you just have a three-dimensional movie, you know, and you can choose everything later.
I hate it when James Cameron is somewhat right about maybe like what Avatar was trying to address. Well, I mean, Avatar is a perfect example, right? Like you, in, in the case of Avatar, you're, you're building sets with actors that are in hair and makeup, and then you're shooting them with traditional cameras, even though they're stereoscopic cameras, they're still, it's completely traditional and you're locked into what you shot. And then, and then he's going to drop those characters into a 3d environment on Pandora and your Pandora environment has to be tracked to the live action cameras you shot six months ago. You can't deviate from that. But if he'd done volume capture on those actors, you would take them like video game characters and drop them into Pandora and do whatever you want. Lighting, camera position, you know, everything. I'm so appreciative that we, you know, you, we could be here with the sound team. We could go on for days. I feel like the space visually is is incredibly exciting and, and sonically obviously with immersive audio and what the promise of of that i feel like you know there's so much more to do you know when it comes to filmmaking and so i'm so excited just to have the opportunity to talk with this team i feel like whether you know people see it in the theater or at home definitely check it out excited that ifc midnight has picked this up and they're gonna be you know presenting it, it looks like august 20th so for folks who are excited to get back to the theater as I am, please check out this film. You know, lastly, um, who else are we forgetting? I mean, I'm looking at the IMDb credits. I feel like this might be the majority of the team, but who else Who else is working behind the scenes? Who else is helping out that you guys want to acknowledge? Uh, Jordan Sai, production sound mixer. He's a, he's a good friend of mine, actually, as well. So he captured all the voices on set. Dave, Dave Hibbert, who recorded the Foley. That's it. We're super tight, tiny team. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a tight team. <laughs> so good. Well, thank you guys so much. Super exciting. Neil, it's such a pleasure to, to have a chance to talk with you. I just feel like I've been such a fan of your work and your storytelling process. What you did here, I think, was really interesting and exciting. And I can't wait to see what's next from, from you guys and this team. So thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Yeah, thank you, man. It was awesome being on. Thanks, Michael.